as we get started, imagine if you were in a dark tunnel and going down deeper and deeper into the earth. You're going down into a cave. You've got a little small light on your helmet, like a miner, but it doesn't offer you much help. It just gives you a little light right in front of you, and you follow the bend in the tunnel, and the ceiling starts angling down, allowing only a small space to go through. It's like a little doorway. Now, I'm freaked out right now because I don't like that. I would, I would turn around and go the other way. But for the sake of illustration, as you squat down, you go through that little opening, and suddenly you find yourself emerging into a large cavern. And the cavern is immense, and everywhere that you look, your helmet light reflects off of huge crystals, some hanging down, shafts reaching 50 feet into the area of the cave, this immense area that you came into. And they're all throughout the cavern, and your light is reflected in breathtaking brilliance as every color conceivable reflects from the ice blue to warm reds and deep yellows and gold. And the entire room is inflamed with color refracting off your little light and you've entered into what seems a virtual treasure house. It's pulsating brilliance of color and light. Impossible to take it all in. You're barely able to catch your breath. It's beautiful and yet it's overwhelming at the same time. Well, that may be exactly the way the Apostle Paul felt as he penned Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. That's our text for this morning. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. It's all one sentence in the original language. 202 words that carry the apostles' enraptured soul from one magnificent blessing to the next. The riches of God's blessing for the believer that is in Christ. It overwhelms Paul as he recounts one blessing after another. They pile up. There's a relentless array of the blessed goodness all bestowed on those who have believed in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and who are now considered to be in Christ. Now, we we sang a little bit this morning about Christ being in us, and that is true as well. I heard of one man that was getting, uh, uh, what do you call it, a sonogram, you know, of his chest, and he said to the attendant that was doing it, he said, Do you see Jesus in there? (laughs) Nice way to go ahead and open up the conversation, right? She said no. (laughs) A little startling. One commentator explains it this way, quote, So the apostles' thought in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 lifts itself beyond the limits of time and above material conceptions that confine ordinary men and ranges this way and that in a region of spirit, a heavenly sphere, with no course as yet marked out, merely exalting in the attributes and purposes of God. You see, Paul understood that God not only forgave our sin debt through the sacrifice of his own dear son, he not only settled our account so that we have no payment left to make, all we have is gratitude for our salvation, but he went on to fill our account to overflow with wonderment. We are immeasurably rich in Jesus Christ. And, and the thought Paul made breaks all rules of grammar as he listed one blessing after another, extolling our riches in Christ. 
In just 12 verses, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, the great apostle will expound God's plan for the ages. What it consists of, how it unfolds, and who is involved in the grand goal of life. And it's all revealed to us through Paul, from God's point of view. Paul's the writer, but it's God who is explaining it to us. So today I'd like to camp on just one overarching theme found in these verses. And in a moment I'll read it to you, just be patient. And it's a theme that I believe is becoming increasingly more important to us in a world where people have lost their identities. Or maybe it would be more correct to say in a world where so many individuals arbitrarily claim their personal identity without consideration of biology or reality. You see, this is truth. Your word is truth. Truth is reality. When you jettison God and leave God, you leave truth. And when you leave truth, you leave reality in the dust. And so anything is possible then. There's no moorings anymore. God has not left the idea of identity open to personal selection. It's sad but often true. Even some Christians suffer from this modern-day identity crisis. Some, thinking of themselves more highly than they ought, consider themselves sinlessly perfect. Have you ever heard of that teaching? It's in the Pentecostal strain of Christianity. They think of themselves sinlessly perfect. I always want to go up to a wife and say, is your husband actually sinlessly perfect? Little gods, if you will. While others, they live in the depths of despair, seeing their consistent failure to live up to the standard of what a Christian should be. And and they're just depressed. Both of these are tied up and wrapped up in their identity, who they see themselves to be. And God's word has some incredibly good news about the believer's identity in Christ. And a major text that addresses our identity is Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. So we're going to do an overview of that and Paul's beautiful description of believers' new identity in Christ. But first, let's read it. Beginning in verse 3 to 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of his glory uh, uh, to the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. With a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ. Things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, 
having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Father, what I just read could take a week of Sundays or a month of Sundays or actually months to explain. It really could. It's so rich, it's so powerful, it's so beautiful. And yet, Lord, we want to skim across the mountaintops of this incredible text and just focus on our identity in Christ. We pray that your spirit would enable me to speak clearly today, to encourage hearts, and to identify what our identity truly is as believers in Christ, and that it might be settled once and for all in the hearts that are here listening and hungry for your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So I want to talk about the new identity that brings blessings in Christ. There's something that I need to state even before we begin this sermon, and that is that your identity, your true identity believer, does not have anything to do with what you do. Doesn't have anything to do with what you do. Instead, it has everything to do with who you actually are. What do I mean by that? Well, it's easy to be seen if you ask the simple question, who are you? So, who are you? And you might answer, I'm Stephen Linetti. No, that is your name. That's not who you are. Well, I'm a pastor. No, that's what you do. And you could say, well, I'm a Christian, one who has trusted Jesus Christ, because that's usually safe, right? No, that's what I have done. I've trusted Christ. Now, there are many other answers that people might give to that basic question, who are you? I'm a mother. Well, that's beautiful for sure. But what of the mother who has become bereft of her children, and that happens, God forbid, who is she then? Or I'm a businessman. Well, that sounds good. But what does that mean if the business fails and bankruptcy ensues and he becomes unemployed? Who is he? Or I'm a singer. I, I love to sing. And, and until a viral infection takes the voice away, then who are you? You see what I'm getting at here? Today, I'll be addressing the deepest identity of the believer. And there is in Scripture that which will help us to understand how easy it is to become confused with our identity. If you can hold your finger in Ephesians and turn over to John chapter 3, I just want to read a couple verses for you. And these verses are so worn out. We've heard them so much that we, they lose their potency. Familiarity breeds contempt almost. In John 3, verses 3 through 7, we read this. Jesus answered and said to him, now he's talking to Nicodemus, right? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Categorical statement, it's stated, that's what it is. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He can't enter again into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Well, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and a spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom. That which is born of flesh is flesh, 
And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. There is a binary for us, right? Flesh and spirit. And then verse 7 says, Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. You know, this is amazing because what Jesus is telling Nicodemus, he's speaking of a radical change in one's essential being. God requires that a person must become a new person to enter the kingdom of God. And I might go so far as to say even a new species of person. Because Jesus explained to Nicodemus, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Two radically different kinds of persons. It's safe to say that being born is becoming someone who was not there before. When the baby's born, we're all excited, right? That baby did not exist before it was born. I know it existed from conception. I'm not going there. Don't go there, please. (laughs) The truth of the matter is, before conception, that baby was not. And when it's born, it is. And that's what Jesus was trying to get across. This is very important. Words matter. And this is even more important when we look at biblical words. These divine binaries that I'm talking to you about, which are being erased in our culture, or trying to be anyways, canceled, if you will, male and female, right? All through the Bible, God uses binaries to teach us truth. There is the living and there is the dead. There is light and there is darkness. There is those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. Romans 1, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22 says, For since by a man, Adam, came death, by a man, Christ, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, there's that little phrase, in Adam, all die, so also in Christ, all will be made alive. There's a difference, people. And it's binary. There's there's no, like, third way here. So I want you to understand this concept. It's important. Paul described the new birth like this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there's that phrase again, in Christ, he is, present tense, a new creature. The word used for new there is kainos, and it means a new in form or quality. It's of a different nature. He is a different person if you are in Christ. And there's another way of describing this amazing miracle that is the birthright of every true Christian believer. Paul identifies it with a little phrase, in Christ, which we see all through Ephesians chapter 1. It says we're blessed with all spiritual blessings. Have you ever had anybody say, God bless you, after you sneezed? It's less and less prominent nowadays. But the next time somebody says that to you, if you're definitely a believer, say, oh, thank you, I have been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. (laughs) That'll get a conversation started. It's nice to be blessed. How much greater to be blessed by the source of all good? But what does the phrase spiritual blessings mean? That we have been blessed with all spiritual blessings. 
in heavenly places. That's in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. The easiest way to understand that concept is maybe comparing Old Testament blessings and New Testament blessings, because we're in the New Testament, we're under the New Covenant. We're not under the law, we're not under the Old Testament. But during Old Testament days, God blessed the faithful, the Israelites, the obedient Jew, with long life, with large families, with abundant crops, with protection from enemies. Think of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and those stories. God's blessings were physical in the Old Testament to the faithful. He promised them land and flocks and all matter of material prosperity. Now in the New Testament, in the era that we live, in the church age, if you will, God still blesses his people today with material blessings. There's not one here that cannot say that God has not blessed you with material blessings. None of us is is starving to death right here, right now. All of us are really blessed with material blessings. He promises to provide our needs. It's true in Matthew 6, 25 through 34, and Matthew 4, 19, to name just two texts. But the blessings of God's people in the age of the church, under the new covenant, are predominantly spiritual blessings. The blessings are non-material, invisible, and imperishable, and are located in heaven. Now, we're living in what could be called already-but-not-yet times. Already-but-not-yet times. God identifies the believer's blessings real clearly, and if you want to take a, a pen and just kind of notate these, you can. In Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, we see... Paul lists some of these blessings. Number one, in verse three, he says, we are chosen. This is the blessing of being chosen by God. If you are in Christ, if you have been born again, if you are a believer, if you have asked God to forgive your sins, then you are in Christ and you are one of the chosen that God has chosen. Number two, adoption. This means becoming God's sons and daughters. You see that in verse five. We become God's sons and daughters and part of his family with all the privileges that are implied. God is our father. Number three, redemption. That's brought out of the slave market of sin. We have been redeemed. We have been bought back out of the slave market of sin. And now we're free to serve in righteousness. That's in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. In verse 7, again, we have forgiveness of our sin debt because it's paid in full by Christ. God has wiped the slate clean, past, present, and future. All sin is forgiven for those who are in Christ. Number five, we have the knowledge of God's purpose in history. We see this in verse 9. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ. Things in the heavens and things in the earth. We are so blessed. We know the end from the beginning, folks. And it's all because we are in Christ. Number six, we are possessors of the guarantee of eternal life. We see this in verse 13. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. We have that promise 
of eternal life. The Holy Spirit is actually a marker. He is a person, it is true, but he is called a seal here. It was a mark, usually from a ring that's pressed into soft wax, a seal of a letter. The seal of God on us as born-again people, as in Christ people, is a marker called the Holy Spirit. He's like that seal that designates that we are God's. The easiest way to understand these things is to look into scriptures and, and do a deep dive and not just go across the top like I am in, in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Like I said, it could take months to get through this. There's so many key words in here. Seventh, if we look at verse 14, there's a pledge. The Holy Spirit given to every believer is like a down payment for our inheritance that's promised us in Christ. And the pledge received ensures a full inheritance would become a reality. Okay? It's, it, it's like we're, we're children with a really rich father. And we know that we have an inheritance from that father. But it has not yet been realized in actuality. It's already been given. It's, the documents are all signed. Everything's there. And there's a pledge in our hearts called the Holy Spirit that guarantees that we will receive that inheritance. The pledge received ensured full inheritance would become a reality. Every believer as one of God's children has been promised an inheritance, but it's not all about us. Look at verse 14 because it informs us that all with a view to the redemption of God's own possessions to the praise of his glory. (laughs) You see how easy it is to get myopic and think it's all about us all these blessings i'm listing out we're going yay 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 i get all these blessings but it's all to the praise of his glory now those were just seven blessings that identify what we have in christ i could go on for a long time listing the manifold blessings of god which are every believer's blessing because of their new identity in Christ, because we are contrary to who we once were. We are someone new and different, a new creature in Christ. We're free from all condemnation, Romans 8.1. We're delivered from darkness, Colossians 1.13. We're acceptable to God. I know you don't feel very acceptable, but God says you are. Why? Because you are in Christ. That's Ephesians 1.6. And we're perfected forever. So if you have any questions, just go to Romans 10, 14. We're perfected forever. Now I skipped like 14 other blessings that I'm not going to read to you right now. There are so many that we receive because we're in Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace. He's our older brother. He's our Lord and Savior. And we are citizens of heaven, according to Philippians 3.20, because our citizenship is in heaven. So we are, but it's not yet realized to fruition or, or in totality. Now, our personal standing, getting back to our identity, right? 
I want you to mark down 2 Corinthians 1.10. 2 Corinthians 1.10. Because in 2 Corinthians 1.10, we're able to identify who we are in Christ in a way that is a little bit um, different from the way Paul talks about all the blessings that we have by the one word delivered, delivered, okay? First, Second uh, Corinthians one ten says, who delivered us, Christ, who delivered us from so great a peril of death. That means eternal separation from God. Who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, okay, He on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. 2 Corinthians 1.10. We're delivered people, those of us who are in Christ. Everyone wants to know what their standing is in any given circumstance, right? When you're still in school, students like to know where they stand. Where do I stand with grades? Where do I stand with popularity? How many hits do I have? On my Twitter, how many likes do I have on my Facebook, right? Where do I stand? Where do I stand with athletic strength and prowess? Everybody wants to know what their standing is. On the job, people appreciate knowing where their standing is there. Am I on the way out or on the way up? What's my standing? Well, in the Christian life, God did not leave us uninformed as to our standing, In fact, he goes on so far as to identify our standing as that of being delivered, past, present, and future. That's our standing. We're delivered people. We are saints that are sanctified and holy. Now, I grew up in a Roman Catholic, uh, went to school at a Roman Catholic school, and a saint was someone that was designated by the Pope to be something special. The New Testament teaches that all who are believers who are in Christ are referred to as saints. And we are sanctified. What does that word sanctified mean? Well, we sang today also about consecrated. What does that word consecrated mean? It simply means set apart. We're set apart. And we are set apart to holiness. The grand list of what believers enjoy in Christ is a list that shows us the done aspect of our identity as believers. It's not a call to do, 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 do. It's a call to rejoice in what has been done on our behalf. The standing of the believer which we have in Christ is not an experience or a feeling, but rather a spiritual fact that brings about results in our life And we are then able to experience those results such as joy, long-suffering, peace, gentleness, kindness, fruit of the Spirit. It's not because of what we have done, but who we are that we are able to claim these things and experience them. And all the elements mentioned as spiritual blessings that God has given believers are not subject to growth. That's an important thought there, okay? They're not subject to growth. They don't grow greater. They are what they are and will remain the same throughout eternity. There's no way anyone can do anything to merit them because they are given to the believer by grace, 
which is undeserved. And all are based on what Jesus Christ has done, not on what we've done. And the only way the believer can discover their standing in Christ is to study the Bible because they're divinely revealed in the word alone. Now we're getting down to brass tacks here. Why is it important to read your Bible every day and pray so you can grow, 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 right? Well, you just said all these blessings are static. What do you mean grow? Well, they're static, but we don't understand them very well. See, that, that's the person that thinks they're sinlessly perfect. They haven't read enough yet. That, that's the person who thinks they're a piece of dirt and, and just such a failure. I'm such a loser. And they're Christians, hogwash that is not what God's word teaches us and it's not something to get puffed up and proud about it's something to fall down on your face and say thank you Lord that I am what you call me to be and call me as I am because of what Christ has done for me I am in Christ these amazing truths and they will affect the way that you live You think of a person, say a little girl, she's got a beautiful voice, but mom and dad are afraid of her getting proud, so mom and dad always tell the little girl, honey, don't don't sing so loud. Honey, just kind of cool it a little bit. Oh, mama, Mrs. So-and-so told me I have a lovely voice. Yeah, 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 just, you know, just cool it, honey. Don't, you, you don't sing that well. You don't sing that well. Now, in all good intentions, the parent's probably trying to protect the child from pride, but that poor little girl is, who has the beautiful voice, a voice of an angel, thinks she can't sing. That's what a lot of Christians are like. They forget who they are in Christ. They have an identity crisis. And so consequently, they live like that poor little girl, singing quietly, instead of shouting it out from the rooftops and letting everybody enjoy the gift that God gave to her. We walk in desperation, thinking, oh, I'll never measure up. (laughs) You're correct. You will never measure up if that's what you're looking at. But I know someone who has measured up, and he's Jesus Christ, and we're in Christ. We're in Christ. As a believer identifies these elements that we have in Christ, our standing, which are all secured in Christ, And as the believer begins to live with that knowledge, it will affect the way they live. In that sense, the person will understand that there's a process of gaining more and more knowledge about our standing. There is a process, but the process does not alter the standing, which is set. It's just that our minds open more and more to who we actually are. It's like a little child growing up, okay? And, and discovering more and more with every year of growth who they are, what family they belong to, what their standing is in that family. Maybe they're a middle child. Maybe they're a firstborn. Maybe there's a baby. They discover more and more as they grow. That's how we are as Christians. The more the believer knows about these matters, the more confidence they have in their Christian life and the more glory they will give to God, the author of their faith and the greater gift giver. There's another aspect, okay? But before I get there, let me me just share with you, why do you think martyrs 
can go to a stake and offer themselves to be burned for their faith because they know who they are and they know what's coming. They're not afraid of that. They understand their standing in Christ. And as we become older, what gives us confidence as we begin to lose our faculties, our, our strength, our abilities where we once were able to do so much? Because of our standing in Jesus Christ, we begin to look more and more forward to heaven, which we've only heard about. We can't see it. The only way we know that is through the divine revelation of God's word. And if we're strong in our faith and we have grown as Christians, we stand more stably in that that truth. But there's another aspect of this deliverance that I talked about as our identity. There's a progressive sanctification. Sanctification is another word uh, that's hard to get your arms around. Sanctification also means to be set apart. Okay, it's part of that delivered, that's part of that new birth that we've experienced. It's similar to getting on an escalator going up. This is, you've heard me say this before, and if you're new here, let me just remind you. When you get saved, when you first believe in Jesus Christ, it's like you step on this escalator, and the escalator's going up, except it's really long. It's as long as your life. (laughs) And you will reach the top of the escalator regardless, because the escalator is always going up. But some of us are knuckleheads. And so we turn around and we try to walk down the escalator. All the while, we're still going up, right? You will get to the top. But I'll tell you what, some people just wear themselves out trying to walk down the up escalator. The Corinthian church was those people that walked down the up escalator. The word sanctify and saint and holy are all derived from the same root word, which simply means to be set apart sanctified, usually for God or God's purposes in the Bible. In keeping with that, we've already stated that there's an aspect of our sanctification that is static, our standing, does not grow, and is part of the blessing of conversion. We have a standing, our foundation. We're in Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.30 tells us that Jesus Christ made us, um, was made to us sanctification. Hebrews 10.10 says, we have been sanctified. That's past tense, okay? Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. And if you look at 1 Corinthians 1, 2 and, and 6, 11, you'll see that Paul identified the Corinthian believers, those knuckleheads running down the up escalator, as believers, they weren't the greatest candidates for the model Christian. And it says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, and to those who have been sanctified. Now, he can't talk about their antics on the up escalator. He's talking about their standing. They have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Saints, by calling, and all who in every place call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Are you starting to understand? Problems, problems. How can people who are already sanctified, who are saints, by calling like the Corinthians, who possess all the blessings that we saw in Ephesians 1, still live as poorly as the Corinthian believers lived. They were afflicted with pride, sexual immorality, taking each other to court, disorderly worship, and so many other indications of ungodliness. Why? It's because of this middle part of being delivered. Okay? It's because of this progressive sanctification. It's the ride up the escalator 
that they were having trouble with. They had standing. They were on the escalator. But they were struggling with the progress on the escalator. Sanctified and saints. Here's here's what you need to understand. That there are three aspects to sanctification. Three aspects to our salvation. Three aspects to our identity. One is standing as sanctified. We're in if we believe. And we can never have that adjusted. That's static. Number two, there's experiential sanctification. That's where we all are right now. We're all on the escalator if we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? And then finally, there's ultimate sanctification. That's when we hit the top of the escalator and we get off. That's heaven. Okay? So I want to talk to us a little bit because so far I've really hammered the stated sanctification or our standing as sanctified and blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. But we are all living within the second aspect, that experiential sanctification. In a similar way, all look forward to that third aspect. We all do of our sanctification. And you can take that that text in Corinthians that I gave you that we were delivered, we are delivered, we will be delivered. Three different aspects, past, present, and future. Now standing, our standing, meets progressive sanctification. Many people get confused here. This is where those sinlessly perfect people are confused in their theology. They think because of their standing, they're sinlessly perfect. I mean, John, 1 John even says, you do not sin. Huh? I do every day. What's John talking about? Well, we could get into that. We're not going to. What I want to talk about is experiential sanctification because it is progressive. That is not static like our standing. It's sanctification, it's salvation, but it's progressive. There's a process and there is growth and maturation. Now, some believers are further along in their aspect of sanctification, and it's all related to their relationship and willingness in allowing God to transform them through the renewing of their minds. That is the crux. In one sense, we all are on that up escalator and we'll all get to the top, our standing as sanctified. But some persist in turning around and walking down the escalator steps. They sabotage their growth through their willful and persistent unconfessed sin. They pick up these sin habits or they carry their sin habits into their new life and they're very reticent to deal with that sin in their life. Uh, The scriptures call that the sin that so easily entangles us. We're to lay it aside. They stunt their own spiritual growth. And consequently, they don't reflect all the Christian virtues that they should if they would allow God to work in their lives. They put a stop to it because they turn around and start walking down the escalator so they can do what they want to do. And if they denied themselves more faithfully and rejected the desires of their faith more faithfully, if they claimed their standing and said, I am not acting as who I am. I am acting out of character with who I am. Do you realize that all sin is a lie against the truth? God calls us sanctified already, past tense, We're already sanctified. So every time that I sin, I'm acting against the truth of who God says that I am. All sin. 
1 Peter 2.2 addresses how we start in the Christian life. As newborn babes, we desire the sincere milk of the word so that you may grow by it. If you're not reading the word, you need to begin to read the word consistently. You need to get into a pattern of reading God's word and let it transform and renew your thinking. Because the more you read the word the more you're going to be able to understand who you are in Christ Jesus. And the more mature you're going to get in your sanctification. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, But we, believers, all, nobody's left out, with unveiled faith beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are, present tense, being transformed, present tense, into the same image from glory to glory. Process. 2 Corinthians 3.18. Ephesians 4.13 talks about growing up into him in all things. That means living in sync with who we are in Christ Jesus. The more we live in sync with who God says we are, the more mature we are in Christ. 2 Peter 1.5 tells us to add to our faith many of the Christian virtues And we're supposed to be diligent about adding to our faith. What do we add to it? Knowledge. We add self-control. We add perseverance. We add godliness. We add brotherly kindness. We add love. Why? Because we grit our teeth and try to add those things to our faith? No, because that's who we are. We should be ones who have self-control, especially in immorality, because we are sanctified. We are called. We are who we are in Christ. Don't sin against the truth. Philippians 2.12, speaking about the importance of obedience, says, work out your own salvation, there's that process, with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you. There's a sovereign, we're on the up escalator, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And then it says, do all things. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. So there is an element of obedience. We must align ourselves with what God's word says. So in experiential sanctification, there's room for growth, and the believer's activity is based upon the reality of their standing as sanctified. We function the way we do in Christ because we are in Christ. And one day, our experiential progressive sanctification will lead to our ultimate sanctification. That's glorification. That's when we reach the top of the escalator. 1 John 3, 1 through 2 is a great encouragement and addresses both our standing as sanctified as well as our anticipated ultimate sanctification. It says this, See how great a love the Father has bestowed, past tense, has bestowed on us, that we would be called the children of God. And then it says this, and such we are, present tense. We're children of God. Act like it. Stop acting like you were before you were born again. Stop acting like that old person that you once were. You are no longer that person. And for this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him, Jesus, when he came. We, present tense, are the children of God. But, there's a contrastive here. That's the present, the now. We are the children of God. But, it hasn't yet appeared what we will be, future. 
when we get to the top of the escalator. We know that when he appears, future tense, when we arrive at the top of the escalator, or we meet him in the air, if he comes down for the rapture, we will be future like him. Because he will future, we will future see him as he is. So we've got our standing in Christ, which means it's all been done ahead of time for us. And now we're in sanctification, progressive sanctification. We're growing in more and more and more into his likeness, the one who created us. We're growing more and more into his image. That's the escalator going up. And eventually we'll arrive at the top and we will be then like he is. We'll be completed in Christ. When your sanctification is complete and you're where Jesus is, you will have transformed bodies You'll be glorified, like Jesus is glorified now, sitting at the right hand of the Father. And you'll no longer be in this body of death that we all live in right now, struggling with sin. The new glorified body will be like his resurrection body. Philippians 3.20 tells us that we're waiting for our Savior, Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. We're going to be just like him by the exertion of the power of that he has even to subject all things to himself. So to summarize, the Christian's identity in sanctification, 2 Corinthians 1.10, we said, who delivered us from so great a peril of death will deliver us, and he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. Now if you mark your Bibles, and it's hard to do on the app, I know, but I'd encourage you to mark this verse in three places. 2 Corinthians 1.10. Three places. Our salvation is complete, therefore our identity is intact. It does not change with the tides or times or circumstances. Therefore we can live with confidence and remain stable and steadfast. So the first thing that you want to mark is where it says, much more than having now been justified by his blood. That's actually in Romans 5, 9, but it's, it's talking about we have been delivered. That's the first part of 2 Corinthians 1.10. We have been delivered. Paul says in Romans 5, 9, much more than having now been justified, past tense, by his blood. We'll be saved from the wrath of God through him. The second place I want you to mark is where it says we are being, we are presently being delivered. That's in 2 Corinthians 1.10. We're delivered from the power of sin. Justification means we're delivered from the, the penalty of our sin. And we are being delivered from the power of sin now. We can say no to ungodliness. Prior to that, we just looked for ways to sin. At least I did. Romans 8.2 says, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. That power has been broken. And thirdly, we will yet be delivered. 2 Corinthians 1.10. That's glorification, ultimate sanctification, delivered from the very presence of sin. And 1 John 3.2. Beloved, now we are, present tense, the children of God, and it has not yet appeared yet what we will be, future. We know that when he appears, we will be, future, like him, because we will see him as he is. Our deliverance in totality 
in actuality, in reality, will come when we see Jesus as he is. Our deepest and most true identity, our authentic selves, as people like to claim today, is not in what we feel. It's not in what other people have told us. Our truest and most authentic identity as a believer is our identity in Christ. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you and thank you for the truth of your word. And Father, it really is like a light in a dark place. It, it lights our way. It helps us to see um, where we fail to see things. It, it shows us what we could stumble over. It tells us who we are in reality. Oh God, help to take the blinders off our eyes. The culture just is ubiquitous. It's everywhere present telling us different things than what the Word of God tells us. Lord, we need to have our minds transformed. We need to have a renewing of our minds, and only through your word is that possible. So, Father, we pray that you would help us, and we thank you that your Holy Spirit lives within us and desires to teach us the truth about who we are in Christ Jesus. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.